This is Two Guys in a River. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. We're two lifelong friends who love fly fishing for trout. Our podcast is all about helping you catch more fish and deepening your love of the time you spend on the river. We are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing. Occasionally, we like to reminisce about the good old days we've had fly fishing. Yes, we do, and we love the good old days. We do, good old days. I suppose there's a danger in that. As someone once said, the good old days are a combination of a good imagination and a bad memory. Ha! That's so true. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But reminiscing about a fine day in the water can be helpful for future days on the water. There might be a lesson or an insight tucked away in the memories just waiting to escape. So today, I want to interview my podcast partner, Dave, about a good day he had on Harrison Flats in Colorado. He's talked about that before on our podcast, and and I'm intrigued. Uh, Depending on what he says, I might try to get him to take me there. Get me to get you there. (laughs) That's right. So I have an (laughs) ulterior motive here. So yeah, I guess my interview then of Dave is a bit self-serving, but I, I do think that we'll all learn something. So... Dave, to begin with, what in the world is Harrison Flats and where is it? Harrison Flats is in the Collegiate Wilderness, which is just west of Buena Vista, Colorado. So it's in central Colorado, really a gorgeous, gorgeous area of Colorado. So it's really between Buena Vista and Leadville. Mm -hmm. And Harrison Flats sits above the timberline. So that's the name of a lake, right? Yeah, the name of the lake is called Harrison Flats. And it sits in a basin surrounded by what's called the Three Apostles. It's three peaks that actually are the Continental Divide. So when you're fishing the lake and looking up, you're looking up at the Continental Divide. It's probably, Mm -hmm. well, it looks shorter than it really is. From the lake, as you're looking up, it probably would take you maybe 30 to 40 minutes to hike to the top of the... Well, it's more than that. It's so deceptive. Mm -hmm. But you're sitting in this basin surrounded by the Three Apostles, which is the Continental Divide. So if you're going to Buena Vista, you actually go north of Buena Vista, and the turnoff is between Buena Vista and Leadville, Colorado. There's a turnoff sign called Winfield, and so you go west, and you go back... 9 to 10 to 12 miles, I'm not sure exactly, to the town of Winfield, which is not a town. I, it may be an old mining town. There's certainly okay. yeah, that would make there's sense. just a couple old cabins there. And, and there's actually a creek that runs near there. And at that point, you can either park or you can drive up. If you have a high-clearance vehicle, you can drive up another mile, which is great because you don't have to then walk that extra mile. Oh, that's right. It really feels good on the way back. And then park at the trailhead. So it's just a great, gorgeous little lake uh, right near the Continental Divide. Very cool. So what do you remember first about that day? So this time that I'm talking about happened last summer. I took a client who lived in Colorado. Uh, he's a CEO for a financial services firm. And we had become friends, and it was his first time fly fishing. So he just bought a Scott rod. So it was the first wow, time nice. he used the rod. And, and so we stayed in an Airbnb in Buena Vista. And so my first memory was really getting up early. Actually, my first memory was the day before, the night before, and I was putting wax on my leader. I had purchased some 
what do you call those leaders? I've actually. Oh yeah, the the uh, furled leaders. Yeah, the furled yeah. leaders. I actually put those out of my mind. I actually stopped using furled leaders, but uh, for the for sorry, the, Glenn, if you're listening, yes, our, our friend Glenn <laughs> recommended exactly. those. I'm not a fan of furled leaders. I've tried them. They're okay for nymph fishing, but certainly not on the surface because you have to add this wax to keep it floating, right? And that extra step for me is just creates pure anxiety yeah. but mm. i remember the night before i'm sitting outside it's kind of dark of the airbnb waxing my leaders right but the first memory of the day was actually once we got to the trailhead and thinking holy cow there were all these cars parked at the trailhead so oh, we had gotten to the that's trailhead a terrible feeling it's a terrible feeling we had got we arrived there probably at six between six fifteen and six thirty, just starting to get light and it was it was like it was like the Walmart parking lot, oh, you know. Man. So Black I'm, Friday at Walmart, huh? <laughs> let me just flash back 25, 30 years. I found this place through a friend who took me up there 30 years ago, and man, has Colorado changed? The pressure mm. on the outdoors is just unbelievable. Yeah. And so my first memory was seeing, you know, probably seven or eight cars parked. You know, and and they they park there for several reasons. Some were just camping up a mile or two. Some people are hiking up to Mount Huron, which is which is a mountain that you can hike. And then some, mm-hmm. of course, are going back further to where we were fishing up on uh, back in the basin right. beneath uh, the Three Apostles. So one of the key things to remember about Harrison Flats is that there is no sign at the trailhead about this lake. You will not find this lake. At the trailhead, so well, that has its advantages. It sure does. It? Nice. It, and I'll tell a, a little bit uh, story a little bit later about trying to find the lake. So, wow. but it's really important. There's uh, the sign for St. Mary's Lake, which you can actually see St. Mary's Lake mm-hmm. across the gorge or across the ravine from from Harrison Flats. Ever fished that one? I haven't. No? I've heard though that it's also really okay. good uh, fishing. Again, yeah. they're uh, you're fishing, you know, fishing basically for cutthroats what we yeah fish. that's what so, i was gonna ask yeah what, what were you catching what were you fishing i think for they were the greenback cutthroat okay and and it was just again it, you're, you're fishing these native cuts and it's just in an environment just beneath the continental divide that's just amazing oh i bet that's just beautiful mm. oh i know it is because i've seen a few of your pictures it just looks gorgeous so as you're fishing that i mean how did the fishing go did you have a you have to make any adjustments did you just start hammering them or did you even catch anything dave <laughs> <laughs> exactly so my first memory actually once we get to the lake is seeing all the sipping so you just see these little sips and you go oh my gosh i now remember how great this lake was and the lake was completely still and and so the first thing I saw was a bunch of small black bugs, which I imagine they're like some sort of midge yeah, hatch. Yeah, I guess so. I yeah. don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I saw a bumblebee and a bunch of small, tiny black flies. So I tied on actually something small and black, you know, to, um, mm-hmm. to actually attract those. And, and I didn't catch anything. My first job actually was rigging up my client's rod and getting him started. So... I very quickly changed his immediately to to an attractor pattern, but my mm-hmm. first memory was putting on the midge, uh, of actual fly fishing, was putting on this tiny, tiny black fly and not catching anything. I was like stumped. But then I took the fly shop monkey's advice, and we had gone to the fly shop the night before, and he said, listen, when you're up there, he said, here's what I would recommend. Here's a size 14 stimulator. Yeah. So it was, you know, some sort of a tractor pattern. I'm thinking, mm-hmm. really? 
way up there on that lake, and it, it was just amazing. I t we put that on, and we started catching fish almost immediately. Huh. And so they're greenback cutthroat. What, what size were you getting out of there? So the size was between probably the smallest was 8 inches. I think I may have caught a 14-inch, mm -hmm. and that's a nice size cutthroat. Yeah. But most of them were between 10 and 12 mm -hmm. inches. Are they are they like typical lake fish where they've maybe had a little bit of time to get bigger? I mean, are they like footballs or are they pretty skinny? They were really thin. Mm -hmm. um, there were, may have been one fish that was not, but that was more fat like a football. But most of them were real. They look really athletic, really wow. thin, yeah. thin cutthroat, long and thin. Mm -hmm. Huh. That's interesting. What what was the what were the conditions like? I mean, is this a warm sunny day or overcast or you know it started out as warm and sunny and then as we got up there it was still warm but just a little bit of light overcast and then it started to clear up again and and so when we were fishing there it was mostly sun but not really bright sun there was just a little mm -hmm. thin thin film of clouds that kind of kept the real, real bright sun off of us. Uh -huh. Although you could see patches of it, you know, in the mountains. And, and, you know, when you're sitting at this lake, you see Mount Huron because you're above the timberline. So wow. Mount Huron is directly to your to the east. Mm. And then to the south and to the west, you're circled by the three mm -hmm. apostles. So it's just oh, really a gorgeous, I bet it was. a gorgeous place. So is this a... Is this a deep lake, or, or maybe what I'm trying to ask is, did you did you fish right off the bank? Were you able to wade out a little bit? What was Good that question. Like? I did wade out a little bit, but it just doesn't matter because they're okay. they're sipping right near the okay, you know, right at the edge of the lake. And what's so great about the lake is there's nothing for your back cast, so you're above oh. the timberline. I do want to go there. I'm then. seriously, it's the most beautiful <laughs> thing ever. Yeah. You 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 know you can you can throw. I mean, it, as as far as you can throw, you can throw it. And, yeah. and so I did at some point took, I took my, uh, my shoes off cause I didn't take my wading sandals. I just took mm -hmm. my hiking boots. I wish I would have taken my wading sandals, but I took my shoes off and it's got a really kind of a sandy bottom and I waded out a little bit okay. farther, but I did not catch any more fish yeah. because I did that. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, here's the one thing that was really interesting is that the fish stopped feeding when the wind picked up just a little bit. Interesting. Huh. So when the wind really settled down, then they mm -hmm. start sipping again. And then when the when the wind picked up, it, they stopped. And then, you know, you'd keep fishing, and the wind yeah. would slow down a little bit, and, and then they would pick up again. So, but that's how it happened. I think we fished for maybe four hours. It yeah. took us four, four and a half hours to get there. Oh, wow. We fished mm -hmm. for three or four hours and then and then went back mm -hmm. down. Yep. What, a couple hours maybe back down? Usually no, it was, actually, it, was, it was actually about three and a half hours. Okay. Maybe a four and a half, five hours oh, okay. to get up there. So, All right. Wow. Uh, it, it just, it, it's a grind. Yeah. It's different from when we hike into Tower Fall. Mm -hmm. And so you and I often go back four miles and then come back. So it's an eight mile run for the day. I mean, it's a hike yeah. of eight miles and we're fishing up and down. Here you're hiking until you get to the lake, but yeah. that last mile and a half, the vertical, it, it's not like up and down. <laughs> it's not like you're doing hand over yeah. hand, but the vertical, it's just, it's, yeah. it's work. It's and not fun. You no, know, you're going, you know, you're walking, th you know, 25, 30 yards and you're stopping. Yeah. And well, no wonder people don't fish it that much if it's not marked. And then yeah, you, it's clearly not you, marked. you have that as well. So what would you say is your best memory from that day as you think on it? Think well, I have several. 
But one of the best was I couldn't find the lake. So And that's your best memory? Yeah, it was the best memory, yeah. So this actually is all apocryphal. But we start hiking up there and years ago, like when I was in my twenties and and hiked up to this lake, the kid that went with me, he was about ten years younger than I was, very athletic. He said, Hey Dave, the shortcut to this lake is to take this avalanche chute. And oh. so we walked by this avalanche chute. <laughs> well, now, 30 years later, the avalanche chute is just overgrown. And, yeah. and you know, I'm also 30 years older. <laughs> yes, so I thought, you know, right. I'm not going to hike up that avalanche chute. So it takes you about almost 45 minutes to get up the avalanche chute. And if I re- had remembered correctly, it took about an hour and a half to go the other way. And I just thought, there's no way I'm going up this avalanche chute. Yeah. And with my, my client, he's a little bit younger than I was, but I thought, He's definitely not in shape to go up this avalanche chute. Yeah, I blamed him, of course. Um, So we decided not to do that. So we went way around, and I had forgotten that the the trail actually stops, which is why nobody goes (laughs) to Harrison Flats, right? And you have to think, okay, I know the lake is between here and the Continental Divide, right? And Mm -hmm. you're still in the timber at this point. So I had enough memory of where the lake was, so I just we went off the trail and started going up to where you get above the timber line. So we started wandering. And we wandered for about another an hour and a half, uh-huh. probably 45 minutes longer than we needed to. Oh, that's frustrating. And I kept thinking, I hope this lake has not dried up, <laughs> yeah. you know, with global warming or something yeah. like that. And we actually found like some pocket water that looked like it had dried up and I thought, "Are you kidding me? Uh-huh. This lake uh-huh. is not here anymore?" But what had happened was when you're above the timber line, there was like a small rise and I had to, you had to get up on top of the rise to actually look down into this lake. Uh, it's not a big lake. Mm-hmm. It's a couple football fields, right? Okay. That's about it. Wow. It's not a mm. huge lake. Hmm. And, and so we finally found it. So the memory was wandering, trying to find this lake in, up above the timber line, thinking, uh, are you kidding me? And, and then you see it and it's kind of that oh, magical moment. Man, like, And then oh, when we yes. arrived, of course, they were just sipping. You know, oh, these, they're just man. rising. It was oh, really, a, a, that is really the best memory of the day. That is so fun. So if you were to go back up there again, when you take me up there again, and you want it to be a perfect experience for <laughs> me, yeah, yeah, what would you do differently? Well, one idea I think, I would love to spend the night. It's so much work to get there. I mean, yeah. think about it. Mm-hmm. We started hiking at 6.30. We got there maybe at 11, fished for three hours, and mm-hmm. left at 2. And then hike back down. Maybe we hike back down at 2.30. And so I, it would be really nice if we could even do just a quick overnight up there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that we could fish both the morning rise, the evening rise, during mm-hmm. the day. I think it fishes well all day. Yeah. You definitely need to to go there after July 1st. I remember years, probably 20 years ago, I went up again. I went up with my brother-in-law, and we hiked up there and come to find out it was still covered with snow. Yeah. And even, so it was still frozen, Mm -hmm. even though the snow was gone from the rest of the area. And so you need to go deep enough into summer, especially if it's been a a, a lot of snowpack that year, to make sure that the snow is actually off the lake. So if I would do differently, I might figure out, like if we go, is there some way we could spend the night? Yeah. You know, just take Mm -hmm. some, and and even just be out underneath the stars. But it'd be great, because you get a lot of good fishing in. It is a good reminder if you're fishing high mountain lakes, uh, the the window that you have is uh, a lot shorter, and it, it usually doesn't start before July, and even sometimes 
mid-July or, or later July might be a better option. I, yeah, for sure. I remember on our, on our honeymoon, my wife and I got married in Idaho, and and we were headed back to Illinois for the summer, and we uh, we got married June 11, and we actually camped a, l- a night or two out near uh, – we drove out to Portland because we were going to be moving there. We camped at Trillium Lake near Mount Hood. That was great. And then on the way back, we were going to stop in Estes Park uh, – Rocky Mountain National Park for a couple nights. I was so excited about that. And we get there mid-June, and, you know, we set up our tent at this campground and went in to hike, and we got up to where we're going to hike and walked in the trail, and about 100 yards later, you know, here's a sign, trail closed ahead because of snow. It's like, what? Wow, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and you, you take that for granted, but in the high country like that, you, yeah, sometimes you have to wait to, to do that to do your fly fishing uh, later on. So what else would you do differently? Well, all right, so this is hard to hard to admit. So we did not go up the I avalanche chute. I love it when chute. you say those words. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't go up the avalanche chute because that was, you know, too hard for our aging bodies. But yeah. I said, you know, why don't we go down the avalanche chute because uh, that might be yeah. quicker, right? Yeah. In a sense, you're taking the hypotenuse of the triangle mm-hmm. and by taking the avalanche chute. So... We decided to do that, and I wish I had not done this. This, The client that I was with, I almost killed him. And, and oh, boy. He just was not in shape to do mm-hmm. this. And I have to tell you, I was. I actually was in really good shape last summer when I did this. And But you really have to be careful. And I didn't take my waiting staff, so ah, we had to be, mm-hmm. and you really needed a waiting staff. So it took us, I think, longer to get down because you had to, in a sense, what's the word snake down yeah mm-hmm. and it it was really dangerous yep. there's a couple moments where i thought because of the shale and that we're going to be just shoot down to the yeah. bottom i mean it mm-hmm. it was really one of the most stupid things i've done like i do a lot of stupid things i'm always thinking like oh let's take the shortcut yeah we can yeah. do that <laughs> mm-hmm. you know yep. and i it i tell you what we got to the bottom we thought wow okay note to self never uh, do this again you know avalanche shoots look from a distance like oh that'd be a nice smooth you know walk down because you've had the snow avalanche and it's kind of cleared everything out yeah supposedly but then you, you you start walking up or down one and you realize yeah first of all there can be a lot of loose stuff and, and secondly um you it's know, you, steeper than it it's looks steeper than it looks and you've got You've got more obstacles than you you think you would. Doesn't look like it from a distance, but you get there and like wow, there's boulders and yeah, shale and any number of things. So well, and this rule of thumb is really true. And I've heard this phrase from John Krakauer, who wrote the book Into Thin Air about the 1996 expedition oh, to Mount McKinley. Was not McKinley. Book. It was, it was uh, Mount Everest. Everest. Yeah, yeah Mount, Mount Everest. Everest. Yep. And mm-hmm. he just makes this point that it's. That it's harder to go down than it is to go up. Yeah, you the summit's only the halfway point, and and the yeah the dangerous part is going because down. you're falling yep. in a sense. Your foot is falling as you're going down, and it's just extremely dangerous. It's harder on your knees too. Isn't oh my it? gosh, yeah, it was. Yeah. We got down and we were just like ex- so exhausted, oh. and it almost kind of ruined. Well, it didn't ruin the day. It took the edge off the yeah. day a little bit because that's a good that's a good way to put you it. You know the yeah. last. 45 minutes well we had another hour and a half hike once we got to the bottom to back to the truck to the trailhead but that last 45 minutes well the 45 minutes of the of the hike down the avalanche you really took the edge off the yeah so huh 
Well, what lessons did you learn that maybe have helped you become a better fly fisher? Well, the first thing is listen to the guy or, or woman at the fly shop. Yeah. And so when he, say, when he said stimulators work up there, and I asked him, well, so how, why do they work up there? Because they're not getting, they can't be getting grasshoppers. He goes, well, it's because of what he called the anabatic winds, these upslope winds that actually carry insects huh. up and they settle on the lake. That's fascinating. Didn't and, realize that. And so these stimulators, they were just, they, they loved the stimulators. And, and I, wow. I tried... Draw, uh, some caddis as well, but it was the stimulators huh. that actually really caused them to come to the surface. That's interesting. And and I would say we caught that day, each of us caught probably 10 to 15 fish. Huh. Wow. And, in, you know, probably three hours. Man. And there were some stretches where we didn't catch anything, but it was really consistent. So that was the first lesson was, you know, just listen, to, <laughs> go yeah. to the fly shop, ask a question, and then obey the fly shop monkey. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, <laughs> so. that's, that's a good lesson. It's a good lesson. It really is. What else? Well, another one is that your your fly fishing buddy that you take out who's never fly fished before, he will always outfish you on that first outing. Oh, that is so true. That's <laughs> <laughs> so true. Now, I will admit that I caught the biggest fish, but... Oh my gosh! Right away, he started catching fish, and wow. I don't know if he really outfished me, but he we certainly were neck and neck the entire yeah. day. He was not looking at me and going, "Man, I wish I could catch fish like you." <laughs> yeah, that's and, right. And like, he hey, this cast. is really easy. He, you know, the lesson is don't go out with a natural athlete. He picked up ask, the rod. Yeah, is he an athletic kind of? And a guy. he just could yeah. cast the rod. I mean, the guy was. Yeah. <laughs> It was just so intuitive for him. He had a really yeah. good rod, Man. and I was fishing my Sage One, I think, and he was fishing um, this new Scott rod that he had picked huh. up. And we had just, and literally, while we were up there, I was ra- unwrapping the reel out of the box. Oh, man. I mean, it was that's literally crazy. the first time he had fly fished. Wow! But huh. he had a great time, and oh, I, he did good. spend a lot of time taking pictures. He was more of a photographer. He's very creative. Okay, and. And um, so I, I found myself fly fishing by myself. Yeah. He was up. There's so many great pictures that you could take up there. So oh, cool. he was out doing that. So that was the second one is that is just remember that, you know, whoever you're yeah. taking out who's new, yeah, he's right. always going to outfish you or at least <laughs> oh, fish as well as you do. Yeah, man. So I would say another one is that even in Colorado, and Colorado has a lot of pressure. It just does on the outdoors. And and it, it makes me sad because I lived there in the 80s when, when there wasn't that kind of pressure. The thing is, if you hike far enough, you know, the lesson is that you can still fly, find waters with no other fly fishers or very few fly fishers. You just have to walk farther than the next yeah, person. Yeah, that's so true. And and that was just another good reminder that, hey, mm-hmm. some of these places are still pristine. They don't get a ton of fly fishers. Obviously, people are still fishing the place, but it's it, it you can still fish it, and there's some really good good places to go and even in Colorado where there's a lot of a lot of fly fishers and a lot of pressure on the outdoors oh that's great and maybe you could add don't go down the avalanche (laughs) chute (laughs) (laughs) oh man that's crazy well that's a just fun isn't it to think about I would love for you and I to do it I know I would like that too I do think we do need to think of it as a two-day trip Mm -hmm. get up there early get out there I would really love, and, and maybe really make it a simple backpacking trip, right? Just yeah. a, a small tent, a couple backpack or a couple uh, sleeping bags, mm-hmm. and and don't take up the six pack of Mountain Dew like I've been known to do. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, so, good night. Uh, That's crazy. But anyway, I would really love to do that. That'd be a fun trip. Yeah, it really would. Well, it's time for great stuff from our listeners. Here are a couple of recent comments. The first is on an older post about five reasons you need a fly fishing waiting staff. Uh, we're always glad to see people still reading and commenting on this one because it's a safety issue. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and this is what Roger said. Roger said, I think it's a great safety measure for anyone, but I have an extra reliance on a waiting staff. I lost my right eye a couple years ago at 49, and one of the first things I was afraid I wouldn't be able to do is fishing. I'm determined to still get out there, but I have to do it safely. Also, since the loss of an eye, I'm a bit more wobbly than I was before, and depth perception issues come into play as well. The waiting staff helps a lot with both issues and helps me get out there and keep following this irresistible call of fly fishing. Now I just need to figure out the several thousand other factors of fly fishing. Wow, we're there with yeah, you on that. Yeah, no kidding. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's a moving, uh, yeah, that's a moving comment, too, and... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you, know, you think about how a waiting staff could help you if your depth perception isn't what it should be. And, yeah, just trying to compensate for the loss of, of vision in that one eye. So, yeah, great comment. Yeah, super comment. All right, then here's a comment from Jim on a question someone submitted a couple years ago uh, asking if the color of one's fly line matters. And at the time, I answered no. And thankfully, Jim agrees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, means that I, I wasn't wrong, I guess. Uh, this is what Jim said. He said, having been a fly fisherman for over 50 years, wow, wow. Uh, my answer to your question is no, it doesn't matter a bit. The color of the line has no place in fly fishing except for the ease of visibility to the fisherman. Honestly, you have a bit of fur and feathers on a three to six foot tippet, which can range from a couple of pounds upward, followed by a six to nine foot of leader. With 6 to 15 feet of nylon between you and the fish, not counting the line, they are going to be focused on the presentation and not the color of your line. Be it crystal clear water for brookies and rainbows or royally discolored water for browns. Trust me when I tell you the color of the line doesn't matter a bit. So, that's well said. really well, well said. said. Yeah. And you're right. There's all, <laughs> Yeah, that's just pure wisdom right there. Yeah, it really is. And with that, that's going to do it for today. Uh, we'd love to have you tell us about a great day you've had on the water and what you took away from it. You can join the conversation by going to twoguysinariver.com and comment on this podcast link. You can find us on the social platforms, especially Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We would love for you to send us your ideas for podcasts. And you can do that at Steve Dave at twoguysinariver.com. Steve Dave, that's one word, at twoguysinariver.com. And also be sure to sign up for our weekly email alerts. And if you want to sign up, you don't know how to do so, just send us an email and we'll get you signed up. We also want to thank all of you who have purchased our book through the years. <laughs> <laughs> through the years. The book hasn't even yeah, been out a year. Right. Through the weeks. <laughs> Through the weeks, yeah. So anyway, <laughs> a big thanks to the, you who have purchased the book, The Fly Fisher's Book of Lists, Life is Short, Catch More Fish. You can find it on Amazon if you haven't yet picked it up. And also, one last thing, we're our podcast keeps growing, and that's thanks to you and all the referrals that you give us and, and reminding other people about the podcast or introducing it to others. So we're just grateful, and thank you very much. We do appreciate it. And thanks again for listening. 
I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. Until next time, we are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing.